Hey everyone, sorry if this sounds weird, I'm recording on my phone right now. This is Chuck, by the way. Uh, just a note about today's episode, but before it gets started, this is the second episode we recorded. We hadn't released it yet because there were some weird audio glitches we found when we came and listened back to the audio. Uh, it seemed like it was actually going to work out perfectly because just for fun, we had recorded a secondary audio for this episode. Turns out that didn't sound too great either, uh, but we cleaned it up as best we could. Uh, we really enjoyed the conversation. We really love the movies that we talk about in today's episode, uh, and we hope that you'll bear with us and get through the, this somewhat walky audio just to join the conversation with us. Uh, also, it's fun for us to just, because this is the second episode we recorded, and even though we've only recorded, what, five, six episodes at this point, it's really fun for us to look back and see how far we've come uh, in putting this podcast together, just with the structure and in the way we hold the conversation. So thank you all for listening, and we hope you enjoy today's episode. And now, our feature presentation, Imitating Art with Don and Chuck. All right, welcome to Imitating Art. I'm Don. I'm Chuck. <laughs> yes, he's here also. Uh, <laughs> so we're going to be talking about a couple movies today, starring the great John Cusack. I've never, I don't think I've ever said his name like that before. Uh, you said. mean incorrectly? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, um, yeah, we've uh, it's been a while since I've seen Say Anything and uh, the other movie, High Fidelity, as, uh, as Chuck knows, is one of my favorite movies of all time. When I asked you uh, what other movies you would want to do for the podcast and you said High Fidelity, A, I, I was not surprised because sure. I know how much you love it, but B... I immediately thought of Say Anything because it's your favorite John Cusack movie and my favorite John Cusack movie, which uh, about 15 or so years ago when we started hanging out and realized that we had these two different John Cusack movies as our favorite movies of his, I kind of realized that they were a, a set. Right. <laughs> like, like they just, I can't unlink the two in my mind now because you have Say Anything, which is very... It's about the beginning of a relationship and John Cusack as Lloyd Dobler is extremely optimistic and never doubts for a second that anything will go wrong. And then about 11 years later, you have High Fidelity come out, which is about the very end of a relationship. And Rob Gordon is one of the most pessimistic emo pieces of crap you could, you could ever come across. The two just go together so well. I think you could even make an argument that you could picture Lloyd Dobler 10 years later, if things really went to crap for him, becoming yeah. uh, Rob Gordon. For sure. And that's the podcast, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, <laughs> But yeah, no, I totally agree. Uh, they, they do, you know, I've never really thought about them that way before, but they do really play well off of each other when you watch them back to back and really think about the, uh, there, there are some good similarities in them, but the, uh, the, the kind of polar opposites as far as the optimism and the, uh, the pessimism go. Um, 
Yeah. So yeah, it was kind of exciting to watch them and think of it, think of them in a different way. I also have always thought that it's very funny and kind of telling that you love uh, high fidelity and you tend to be a little bit more of a pessimist. Yeah. And I love say anything and not that I am an optimist, but compared to you, I'm a little bit more of an optimist usually. Right. So, <laughs> so. Well, I think, I think your optimism t- somewhat stems from the apathy <laughs> where it's like, well, it could happen. It couldn't, it doesn't really matter. Right. <laughs> That's true. Well, uh, when we first uh, started hanging out, I think I was a little more optimistic and a little less apathetic. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, uh, again, I do not consider myself an actual optimist. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've if, if I'm really getting down to it, I'm, I'm always surprised at how optimistic I am. Like when I really examine my actions, I'm like, I'm clearly optimistic about something because I'm always working toward. <laughs> something that I think is really going to happen, even if I'm deluding myself into believing it's going to happen. <laughs> but I'm uh, on the, on the outside, I can see how some of it comes out as pessimism, but I think a lot of that has to do with my, my optimism uh, allows me to have expectations <laughs> and then those expectations aren't <laughs> met, which results in disappointment. So it's more disappointment than not, than pessimism. <laughs> if that, if that makes sense, you know? Sure. It does. I get myself all excited about things and then I'm like, it didn't happen exactly the way I wanted it to. <laughs> but anyway, so what are we going to do today? What are we going to talk about? Uh, well, you already said what we're going to talk about. Well, I talked <laughs> what we're going to talk about, but just as, as, as a reminder, what we, we're going to talk about the, the lessons on this, on this podcast. We talk about the lessons that we learn from these movies. This is one's a little bit different as we're kind of comparing and contrasting two movies, but they just like, as we said, they go together as a nice little couplet. So we're going to kind of see how they, how those two relate to each other as well. Well, uh, okay. Well, do you want to Turk? Let's just talk Turk. Do you want to talk (laughs) just a little bit about the the movies themselves first? Um, Like say anything like full disclosure to people who aren't Don, who are listening (laughs) to this, uh, used to mean, I mean, I still really like it and watching it. It had been a while since I watched it and I was very glad that I still enjoyed watching it this time. But uh, it, when I was in college or so, I used to think I was a romantic. <laughs> and I thought that I saw myself in Lloyd Dobler. But now that it's several years later, I think that I just wanted to see myself in Lloyd. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot about Lloyd that I wanted to be true about myself. And I sort of almost reimagined myself as a Lloyd Dobler type while I was in college. It's funny that you say that because I, in my notes here, too, I have written... Uh about high fidelity that I've kind of (laughs) fancied myself a Rob Gordon type (laughs) maybe kind of put myself in his shoes a little more than I should have. I'll talk about high fidelity again in a minute, but say anything like I was, I had the Lloyd Dobler with the boombox poster in my (laughs) dorm room in college. Uh, I had the sticker on my guitar. Um, (laughs) Yes, you did. Obviously, for if you can't tell from what we're talking about, it's a love story. And it takes place right as high school is ending for the main characters, Lloyd and Diane. And the movie is really mostly about like moving on, moving forward, shedding the past and taking the next step. Right. And the, the fact that it starts like on graduation day, it's like that theme is, is built into the movie. But there are so many little moments throughout the movie that kind of remind you of that. And before before we get too far away from your original statement, I, I, I do want to say I think I think it is I think I don't think it's that you're not a romantic. 
I think it's just that you're uh, a, a, you're not a cartoon character, romantic like somebody from a from a movie might be. You are a realist, romantic. Well, well, thank you. <laughs> uh, I appreciate that. <laughs> so yeah, so say, I mean, say anything. It was it was kind of fun going back to that, and it's been a long time since I had watched it. Uh, so everything kind of came back. You know, every time you watch a movie that you had watched so much a long time ago, like scene by scene, I was like, okay, now I remember. Oh, yep, I remember this is going to happen next in this. So it was kind of fun to watch it. I remembered, uh, what's the what's Diane's dad's name? Jim. Jim. But what, what, I'm sorry, what's the, what's the actor's name? Uh, John Mahoney. John Mahoney, yes. Yeah. So I was like, as, John, as soon as John Mahoney, I just pictured him singing... Ricky, don't lose that number. Yeah. <laughs> and and I was like, uh, and him having his like very fatherly laugh when she gave her graduation speech and said, I've seen our future and go back. Their whole relationship is a little creepy, right? It's a little weird. Because uh, he's really the only friend she has. Right. But he's basically made her like an ersatz wife. I don't know what that is. Ersatz, uh, replace, <laughs> replacement. <laughs> okay. But just the fact that, A, he's he's just a bad dad all around. Spoiler yeah, alert. Yeah, it really, it really for comes the movie. out. It really comes out. Yeah, you should watch these movies before you listen to us talk about <laughs> them, by the way. <laughs> like, in that first scene with them, the way he is barely paying attention to the speech as she's rehearsing it, and then laughs at a joke because it's obvious that it's supposed to be a joke. Yeah, she she definitely pa- she pauses there, and when she gives the speech, like <laughs> waiting for the laugh, <laughs> and he laughs he laughs the same way both times. Yeah, but it's a bad joke, and instead of just yeah. saying maybe you should lose it, speak from the heart, something, he just fakes a laugh, tells her it's hilarious, yeah. and then when she tells it at graduation, no one laughs except for. Yeah. His uh, one laugh cu- coming from the audience. It, it felt like a high school speech, though. Like they're meant to, like they're they should be forced. They 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 would feel forced. I didn't know. I don't know anyone who gave like a really good valedictorian speech. Everybody's reading off of a paper, more or less. Um, oh, so, I agree. And, and I also think you know it's good advice, <laughs> even if it's a bad joke. It's good advice. It is. <laughs> um, Although what I think is really funny is right before her, you see the tail end of what I assume is the salutatorian giving his speech. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And, and, and he's just singing uh, the Whitney Houston song, the greatest gift of all, I think is what it's called and rocks it. Everyone applauds. Everyone, everyone loves that. He just sang this song. And then Diane goes up super prepared with her speech and it just falls completely flat. Yeah. It really, and I guess that was really, that, that really does give you the, like the high, like the, the the highs and lows, or the yin and yang of of the high school people that you know, <laughs> the very prepared people, and then the people who are just going to wing it and screw around on stage. But at the, at the end of the day, it's just uh, a graduation speech, and it doesn't matter. Right. Exactly. Which is <laughs> like, probably the lesson to learn there. Right. Well, one of the lessons I thought was somewhat, at least, evident in the movie is that there's no one right way uh, to live life. You have Diane who works super hard and prepares everything, uh, has set plans for the future. And then you have Lloyd who doesn't even know what he's going to do immediately after high school, just lives moment by moment. But they're both okay. Yeah. 
Like, there's no sense that either one of them is leave, living a bad life be, because of the way they're choosing to live it. Yeah, I was thinking, I, I was listening to something recently that was talking about, like, when do you actually become an adult? Like, when, you know, when do you feel like you're going to be an adult? Is it when you graduate high school? Is it when you graduate college? Is it when you get a job, married, et cetera, et cetera? But, and the answer that they gave was, well, it's when you realize that nobody has all of the answers or anything. Everybody's kind of just faking it until they make it. And then you kind of forgive people for the way that they are. <laughs> I like that. You know who could stand to uh, hear those words, though, is Rob Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes, yes. He could, he, he needs, he needs a therapist, I think, uh, which is maybe it will be in the sequel. <laughs> uh, hopefully they never make that sequel. Well, yeah, uh, but, uh, but this, this scene made me think of uh, the graduation scene made me think of my graduation, which was, um, multi-layered, which we don't need to go into the fact that it was, we were forced Rained to have out. it outside. <laughs> yeah. We were forced to have it outside, even though we had an indoor facility ready for it because everybody was there, quote unquote. And then it got, then it rained, and sure enough, it got canceled. And then people cried because they didn't get to have their graduation. I didn't. Me and my friends didn't really care, but <laughs> but I mostly remember the beginning when we were standing. It was raining before we went outside, and they told us uh, while we were waiting in the gym that if we didn't go outside, that we would be coming back for like for summer detention. This is like, and they're yelling at graduates who are going out for a ceremony. Like this is like their one last chance to have power over us, and. <laughs> I most, and I remember they were like, no balloons, no streamers, no water guns, no, n- nothing. And I was like, what, so what is this? What are we celebrating here? <laughs> like, <laughs> we just can't have fun now. It's just that this, that's mostly what graduation themes remind me of is that I was happy to get out of there. I don't want to go back. I was, I was happy to get out of the structured, like, uh, it kind of felt like we were just being uh, led down the garden path they wanted, to, wanted us to follow kind of thing. I'm actually glad you bring that up because one of my favorite things about Lloyd as a character is he doesn't want to do something just because he feels like that's what people are supposed to do. Right. Like uh, at the party scene towards the beginning of the movie, uh, for some reason, a guidance counselor shows up for the party. From the high <laughs> yeah, school, that was weird also. Played by B.B. Newworth from Cheers. That's, okay. I mean, she's been in lots of things. She was in the first Jumanji movie with Kirsten Dunst. I know her mostly from Cheers because I grew up with Cheers. Anyway, she shows up, talks to Lloyd because he's the only one who hasn't, you know, like submitted uh, any college applications or made any sort of plan for the future. And Lloyd has that great mini speech about how people do those things only because they feel like they're supposed to. Right. Uh, not not because they actually want to. And yeah. he says, so I don't know, but I know that I don't know. Right, exactly. Which is a great, which is a very, very kind of poignant thing that he says right there. He's like, isn't it more important that I know that I don't know where everybody else is pretending that they know because that's what they're told they have to know at this point. Especially for me, I think the biggest lesson that I take from say anything is just get to the next moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause, and that's all Lloyd is trying to do. And really that's all Diane is trying to do too, but she's also planning five other steps beyond that but she's still scared about this next step. So her, her Diane's next step in life is she wins a fellowship. She has to fly to England to take this fellowship, but she's scared of flying. Right. So, so she's scared of taking this next step. And in fact, the movie ends just as they're about to go. And Lloyd is just trying to calm her down just to get her through this next step, which is wait, you know, when a plane is taking off, that's one of the most dangerous points of the flight. 
Just right. wait for that light. Just wait for that light to go off and you're going to be okay. Yeah. Which was a great and, ending. I felt like yeah. it could have, I felt like it could have been built up a little more like the, not, not, not to get into the structure of the movie too much, but I felt like that, like that, that her fear of flying was glossed over a little bit in the, in, within the movie where I feel like it wasn't like uh, brought up enough times where that last scene felt quite as impactful as it could have. Yeah. But I still really liked it as an ending. Me too. And again, he, he's just reminding her, just get to that next moment. Worry about what comes after, after that. Right. Just w- worry about this moment right here, right now. And then we'll take care of the next moment when we, when we get to it. Not that all of her plans beyond that are bad, but we still just have to get through this right now. Yeah. So, and, and I mean, he's, so he's grappling with the, the life stuff while he's still, but he's, he's dealing with it right now, which is his infatuation with Diane for, for whatever, you know, he sees her, he thinks that she's different and she's special and smart or whatever. And then he's like talking to his friends about it. And he says, I want to get hurt, which I thought was really interesting. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Well, (laughs) one of the lessons, possible lessons that I wrote down was uh, we learn from pain. And I was thinking of that moment specifically. I think Lloyd recognizes that a part of life is having those down moments, but he looks forward to those down moments, you know, like, um, right. He he wants those things to happen to him so that way he can he can grow from them. Yeah. But then, but then once it happens to him, because again, spoiler alert, she breaks up with him. Mm-hmm. But once it happens, he suddenly wishes none none of it ever really happened. Sure. Well, that's how you feel when you're in pain. It's easy to look at it from from a uh, from from the, the the tower above and say, oh, you know, everybody has to go through pain. So that, that's why it's easy to give advice when you're not going through the pain yourself. <laughs> But I think that whole sequence of him in the car is one of, uh, I think, the most realistic breakup sequences. Sure. Where he's just driving around, uh, musing out loud about his memories with Diane as he's driving past all of the places they had gone to. Do you want to say it or should I? (laughs) (laughs) You can say it. I gave her my heart and she gave me a pen. Yes, I was so emo in college (laughs) that I wrote a song called I Gave Her My Heart and She Gave Me a Pen. (laughs) And I, I can't find a recording of it anywhere. I wish I could. I'm not a good singer, so it's probably better that it's lost to, you know, the the void. Yeah. But I kind of wish, and I included a sound clip in the middle of it during an, during an instrument, instrumental part uh, of John Cusack saying, I gave her my heart and she gave me a pen. <laughs> it was super fun and 2005 emo. Yeah. I mean, it's so, that's such an emo scene. He says, like, he's basically spat, like spitting poetry there. He says, the rain on my car is a baptism. That, a baptism. that just comes out of nowhere. And then he, the new me, he finished power Lord. Yeah, it's crazy. My right? salt on the earth begins now. <laughs> and then he, then he finishes up with, which I always, uh, unfortunately uh, identified with where he says, you start out depressed and everything else is a pleasant surprise. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, that's a good, that seems like a good way to live. Yeah, I can do that. <laughs> One of my favorite things about that whole sequence is he goes to see his friends at like the, the gas and sip, including of course, Jeremy Piven, who has the real story about, I got hurt too. It really sucked. And everyone's like, you're bringing this down, but they're obviously just a bunch of idiots. And then it just cuts, cuts back to John Cusack driving in his car. And he says, that was a mistake. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I love love the the narration in both of these movies. (laughs) Yeah, that that scene has just made me laugh every time. <laughs> there are there are a couple other things that I want to point out on this one. For for one thing, the, that he said okay. that he says to his his older sister, he says, 
how hard is it to just decide to be in a good mood and just be in a good mood? <laughs> and like, he, yeah. he has this like rosy outlook on everything while when he, he's like, he's just so optimistic about things. It's, it's amazing. I actually, that quote is just one of the things that I think every once in a while, like if I'm, if I'm in a bad mood, yeah. I, I, I think of that line to try to cheer myself up. Yeah. One more thing about just Lloyd's incapability of thinking of the future. I think it's very important that he loves kickboxing and he's really into kickboxing because <laughs> yeah. when he first mentions it to Jim, he calls it the sport of the future. Yeah. A couple scenes later when they're having the dinner scene and he brings up kickboxing again, he says he doesn't know what the future is for it because it's so new that there's no way of telling how big it's going to continue to be in the future. So the fact that even his biggest hobby is something that even like no one knows how far this thing is going to go. And that parallels that parallels the relationship and everything else and, and life and the job and all the other stuff. So he's just able to kind of take things as they come. And he's not scared by he's it. He's a futurist. Yeah. <laughs> well he's a he's a now is because like he he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't live in the past he doesn't let the the past dictate who he is you know he lives with his sister his parents live in germany he just got back from being with his parents in germany but that doesn't really affect who he is and he doesn't think anyone else's past should affect them either which is why he's trying to get his sister to get past uh her ex leaving her right you know she's she's a single mom and like he tells her in the same scene with uh, how hard is it to just decide to be in a good mood? He tells her, you used to be fun. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, that's, and I mean, yeah, so I mean, that's, that basically kind of sums up his personality for sure. But like everybody else is worried about they're, they're, they're putting so much importance on grades and college and what you're doing next. And I mean, a lot of it's about expectations as well, like even. Even Diane, like who had never been to a party before, she had all these expectations of what a party was going to be like, and she had never been. And then she went, yeah. and she was and so fears. happy she went. Fears and expectations, and then that's when you get to have Lloyd as the as the keymaster. Yeah, <laughs> just the best. Uh, I also I also like that she just had never spent any social time with her classmates. Right. Nobody knew her. <laughs> n- now that she's graduated, she finally got to it, and yeah, like like. Lloyd said, uh, they knew, everyone knew, they knew of you. Well, you know. Now they know you. Right. <laughs> I, I just want to bring up one last lesson from Say Anything uh, that I was thinking of before we move over, because it dies, ties directly into high fidelity, mm-hmm. which is uh, don't define yourself by your relationship. I'm not talking about Diane and uh, Lloyd, because I think they're pretty good at keeping their personality separate from their romantic relationship. But A, you have Corey, Lloyd's best friend, who has basically completely uh, defined herself by her ex, Joe, who she's written, what is it, 50 songs about, (laughs) 59 songs, because he cheated on her and broke up with her and hurt her. They're all about you. They're all about pain. Yeah. (laughs) But that sequence where she just sings all of the songs is great. But, you know, if you were to ask her, that's just who she is. They do. The they do really. That used to be with Joe. It feels like she was a bit uh, ahead of her time as far as songwriting went. Like it feel they they, they sounded like early '90s songs in 1989. <laughs> yeah. So two things about that. One, it's written and directed by Cameron Crowe, who is a huge music nerd. Mm-hmm. He used to write for Rolling Stone. Two takes place in Seattle because uh, grunge and oh, yeah. 
even in 88, 89, before grunge was huge, uh, Cameron Crowe recognized that Seattle was like the music town uh, of the time. So I don't think it's a coincidence that she was writing those like grungy, darker, emotional songs in this movie in Seattle. That's great. That's a good point. I didn't think about it being in Seattle. That's great. That theme does tie into high fidelity. So, and so does the music thing. But uh, like I heard, I heard a lot of ska music and like punk music in the background of that party too, which I don't know when the last time I watched this movie was, but I didn't really recognize, I don't really remember recognizing any of the music, but I know Seattle and the, and that, like that Bay area, you know, the Northeast or the Northwest Bay areas were big on like punk and ska music before yeah. that kind of took, well, took, took over the, the rest of the world or the U uh, S. But also John Cusack is really big into punk and ska music. Like he's a big fishbone fan. Really? I didn't know that. So I'm pretty sure that he probably, he and Cameron Crowe probably got together and talked music a lot. Okay. And prob- I assume probably helped each other pick out that soundtrack because yeah. they it, it was it's filled with songs that they both would uh, probably love. Well, if he likes punk music uh, and but, if he's into M- and MXPX, who are from Seattle, um, they, refer- <laughs> they reference the Broken Glass, like Step Around the Broken Glass in one of their songs from Life in General. So I, I, always, oh, nice. I always appreciated that scene uh, being pictured in in that song uh one of my favorite bands from from back in the day right from back in the back day. in the day as if you don't still have the tattoo i still have the tattoo um, i don't listen to the records very much anymore <laughs> <laughs> so another the other main relationship that i think uh defines the characters in them in say anything is diane and and her dad okay oh, okay at the beginning of the movie diane is obviously like she's done a lot of work but she seems like she also just defines herself by being a good daughter because mm-hmm. she's like, they're the only people they have. Like they're all they've got that could end up potentially being Diane's downfall. Right. Uh, in, in the movie, like the um, Philip Baker Hall, who plays the tax agent that she talks to later in the movie mm-hmm. uh, because, because her dad is uh, a criminal and he's being investigated <laughs> and she's trying to defend him and stick up for him just like she did in court when she picked him to stay with when her parents were getting divorced she goes and tries to defend him and the the tax agent just says look he's guilty stop worrying about it just go to england yeah don't let this bring (laughs) you down too (laughs) so i guess that's another way to Um, say don't let your relationships define your life whether that be with your partner or your parents or whoever it is yeah any don't define yourself by one relationship right. i mean if you want to define yourself by how you treat those people you're sure. in a relationship with sure but don't let the existence of that relationship define who you are and make the decisions for you And with that, I think we go to High Fidelity. High Fidelity starts off with uh, John Cusack sitting there after the recent breakup and telling his girlfriend she doesn't have to leave the, or his ex-girlfriend at this point, that she doesn't have to leave the apartment right then. You know, and like, she's like, let's, you know, we just did the hard part. Let me just leave and get over it. And then he puts on some headphones, cranks up the music, and then starts yelling at her out the window. (laughs) So very (laughs) strong start for the movie. It is very strong. Well, a one of the themes of the movie is the first line of the movie, which is also a Fallout Boy song, which came first, the music or the misery. Right. 
was I miserable because I listened to pop music or yeah. did I listen to pop music because I'm miserable? Which is basically everything you need to know about Rob Gordon as the movie is starting. Yeah. He can't separate himself from the music he loves. Yeah. One of my favorite things, though, about the opening of High Fidelity is they could have opened it up when Rob comes home from work. He and Laura get into a fight and she leaves. And we could have seen that breakup. But it doesn't matter because within seconds of the movie starting, without saying they've just broken up, it's immediately apparent what's going on. Yeah. She turns the music off on him and tells him, I'm leaving now. <laughs> like she's upset. She's crying. She's got her bags. Yeah. That's the thing. She's leaving and he's like, just just stay for tonight then. Like you don't have to go right this second. And that, I mean, s- similar to like, similar to the characters in, uh, in Say Anything, like they, they don't want to let. They, just, they have a hard time letting go. And that that's a big theme of this movie as well. Like they don't, they can't yeah. let go. They can't, or they're not able to see what's next, even though they're curious, you know, that they're curious about it, but they just uh, are unable to, or unwilling to just uh, stop holding on to that one thing or that one person. Very much so. And th- again, that's why, why I think these movies kind of go hand in hand. Yeah. Although I will say in say anything, it's mostly fear of the future mm-hmm. or, or just living in the moment that, that they do, uh, which, uh, is there a kind of hindrance to moving forward? Right. But for Rob, it's his inability of letting go of the past. Yes. He completely lives in the past and, again, de- defines himself by his past. In fact, the entire movie is just Rob talking about <laughs> exactly the things that have happened to him in the past. Yes, the most, uh, like, I, most uh, a big portion of the movie has to do like with the past itself. Like Half the movie is set in the past and him talking about what happened before something. Okay. Something just occurred to me. So the entire movie is Rob's just been broken up with and it's so shaking to him that he then seeks out his top five breakups of all time or top four Mm -hmm. to find out what went wrong. Why does this keep happening to him? Uh, Which is a very interesting thing about Rob is that breakups are something that happened to him, (laughs) not because of him. Right. Even though it's clear as he's recounting each story that every breakup is a direct result of how, of how of he acted, yes. <laughs> being, I mean, Rob's an asshole. I think we could just say Rob Gordon is an asshole. Absolutely. But he loves telling his own story because it gives him a chance to try and defend himself and prove that he's not the asshole. Right now. Even though it's. No, it's it's a very thin veneer. Something I, I noticed uh, watching this movie this time, because maybe just because I was paying attention in a different way. But uh, since you said this is, you know, he's telling his story so he can try to come off a little bit better. Um, the whole movie is from his perspective. Like it, not only is it narrated by mm-hmm. him, but every like every scene is, he's he's in every scene. Like there there aren't really any scenes without him. It's just his perspective. So any of the stuff we're seeing is colored through his lenses. So, you know, you have to take it a little bit with a grain of salt when somebody is being the way they are. Is it is it really the That's way they true. are or is it how he is perceiving them being to him? I never thought of it that way. I this is the first I time I thought of it. Because, <laughs> because it's based on a novel that I assume is written in the first person. Yes. If I were reading it, then I think that would come through that, oh, I'm just seeing his perception of them. But because it's a movie, I'm not looking through his eyes. I'm looking at him, too. Right. So it feels like... You, even though he's narrating it, it feels like it's the third person because I'm watching it happen. Yeah, and I, I felt that was, that was an interesting way to, to see it. For like, I've seen this movie, I don't know, you know, fifty times. <laughs> I've seen it so many times that I 
getting it and have never seen it this way because I'm actually looking at it critically this time. And actually, to completely prove your theory true, one of the revelations he has in the movie is that he, he remembers Charlie as being better than she actually was. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so we see a sequence of Charlie when they were younger, like in college, post-college. Mm-hmm. We only see her briefly, but she seems great until she cheats on him. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because even later, we see that she's not actually that way, but we don't actually see it. He says it yeah. over her talking, which is there's... Watching this movie, there are several moments where I'm like, this this movie can't happen today because it's mostly just an angry white guy saying women are wrong. Yep. So the fact that there's a sequence where he's at a party at Charlie's house and she's talking with her friends or, or whatever, but over her talking, you hear his narration right. of saying how awful she actually is. Yeah. Uh, I mean, she she does she does seem objectively awful, but I I, I take your point. <laughs> like she's just, she's yeah. just like too hoity-toity and like doesn't. Uh, but I, at the same time, it's, it's it's really interesting to watch this movie at different periods in my life. I've been watching it for so so long <laughs> since two thousand, whenever it came out. Um, like it's it. I've gone through a lot of periods of life through then, and a lot of changes myself. And watching it initially, or reading and reading the book, like I was enamored with this character, and I was like, you know in this in this similar emo way to Lloyd Dobler where I'm like yeah mm-hmm. girls are always you know breaking up with me or whatever it was <laughs> like what is the, what what is the issue with what, what's wrong with everybody else like I'm always you're always looking outside yourself for something instead of looking into yourself for something and like my perception of Rob from being like oh yeah he's he's done some shitty things but like everybody else kind of sucked around him to being like, oh, why did I ever think this character was a good guy? He's terrible. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, he, he, he's he's awful. Yes. Uh, so one of the lessons I wrote down is sometimes you're the problem. Yes, you are the common denominator in this top five. <laughs> it's interesting because very early in High Fidelity, Rob almost comes to that conclusion, but he comes to it once and then doesn't bring it back up, which is when he, uh, the the girl who wouldn't sleep with him in high school or whatever. Mm-hmm. I thought it was college, but I think it's supposed to be high school. Either way, it's John Cusack playing his high school playing college stuff, which, <laughs> which, which, which looks hilarious. Well, no, but way more of an asshole yes. oh, yeah, because yeah. there's the, the, the girl, because it's the girl who won't sleep with him. Yeah. And, and she sleeps with the other he's guy. Just like, or so he heard. You're right. <laughs> but that's only after he's like, you know what? What's the point of this? You you never it never goes anywhere. <laughs> have sex with me. Yeah. So so I'm so he just leaves, and then she tells him that, and he somehow, even though he told us this story, <laughs> and we watched it happen, only when she says it to him does it occur to him <laughs> that he left her, right. and then and he was the dick. But instead of immediately looking at the other big breakups in his life and saying, "What did I do here?" Is there something I did here too? He still needs to go and seek them out right. to see what went wrong. And that scene was happening when, when he found out that somebody else, like she had slept with somebody else, they were in the chemistry lab and then he had something that exploded, which I always think yeah. the thought was funny because, well, just the, the, the idea of chemistry and uh, the, the chemistry you have with somebody <laughs> versus, you know, actual chemistry and then having something blow up is, is a great little, little play on, Onwards. I thought you were going to mention the scene where he was talking about the things that he did to be when uh, Liz came in and told him he's a fucking asshole. <laughs> and he was like, uh, I'm guessing that she found out these three things. One of these three things that I uh, borrowed money and never paid it back that uh, Laura, uh-huh. Laura had an abortion 
And there was a third one that I don't, that I don't remember. He um, oh, he cheated he, on her while she was pregnant. Right. And then like he admits all that so, stuff. He's like, yeah, I am a fucking asshole. <laughs> yeah, but he's but not only does he say, yeah, I'm kind of an asshole for that, but then he goes on to immediately defend himself. Right. He was like, he was like, well, I don't have five thousand dollars to pay her back. Uh, I didn't know things she was weren't going. Yeah, I didn't know she was pregnant, and things weren't going great. So yeah, I ended up. You oh know, yeah, and then he blames Laura for saying like, uh, she asked me, uh, have I been? You know, I've been kind of sort of looking around for somebody else, <laughs> and he, he was like, yeah, she tricked me into saying it because she's a lawyer and she's much smarter than me. <laughs> like it's like it's yeah. a candid compliment. Liz, by the way, we have to throw it out there. Played by John Cusack or Joan Cusack, Cusack, which is John Cusack's actual sister, who also plays his sister in Say Anything. <laughs> yes. Uh, um, she does make cameos in a lot of his movies. So I've always, as far as these people go, I mean, I've, I mean, you, you, I, I identify with them not only on, uh, I identified with them as like the music fans and the music snobs as well. Like I've, I was always into, I was always into like punk and ska music and all that kind of stuff too. But I always like wanted to find out about the bands and I wanted to find all the, you know, all the B sides and stuff on uh, on Napster or LimeWire or whatever, Kazaa Light, whatever sure. you can download stuff <laughs> with. You know, I was always like trying to find the MXPX Blink-182 Newfound Glory B sides and the live version mm-hmm. of Xmas or whatever it was, <laughs> you know, like I wanted to uh, have, I wanted to just hold and have all that music with me for some reason. And uh, it's just like this. I, I completely understand. So speaking of these music snobs, A, Rob is an asshole to pretty much everyone, including Barry and Dick. But even though Rob is obviously dismissive of the music that Dick listens to and doesn't care about it, it's one of those things where they make Barry be an even bigger (laughs) asshole to him. (laughs) So it's like, it's okay, because now it seems like Rob is on his side, even though Dick just close so clearly just wants to be liked. Yep. Like that's that's his only thing is I want people to like me, but I'm shy. Yeah, and I mean Rob Rob rolls his eyes at Dick behind his back, whereas Barry just calls him right out on it, which is probably the more respectable thing to do. <laughs> even though probably. even though even though Barry is wrong half the time. I mean, so Barry is played by Jack Black, and it's basically just you take the most basic Jack Black role and boil it down, and and you have Barry. Well, you can, you say that, but this is the kind of the first Jack Black role where he was Jack Black. So it is. This, this kind of <laughs> defining moment as he is Jack Black. And he, he does, for me, he kind of steals a lot of the, of the show because I love all of what he does as this character. It's this interesting thing, right? Where Barry is really an asshole, but he's not the main character. So he's allowed to be an asshole and you're allowed <laughs> to like him for being an asshole. Yes. The only person that, or the only people that he really technically hates are are hurts are the people in the shop yes who are are nameless and basically faceless to us so it's just a comedy scene even though he does take it way too far (laughs) i do i do love that he kicks the guy out like he basically tells the guy no we don't have i i just called to say i love you (laughs) do you not know your is your daughter in a coma oh (laughs) like (laughs) that's one of my favorite scenes but like I said, speaking of uh, the music snobs, hot take for this podcast, but one of the lessons that comes through in spades in High Fidelity is learning life through pop culture isn't always healthy. Uh, yes. Yes, because like that that is the way they relate to everything. As soon as when Laura's dad dies in, in, later in the movie, the first thing they do is uh, top five songs about death. And then like talk about what songs yeah. they would want to play to play to their funeral. Yeah. So not only is it top five songs about death, it's what songs do they think should be played at Laura's dad's funeral right. first? <laughs> right. 
and and what uh like emotional impact is that going to have on the people at that funeral and then oh yeah what do i want at my funeral too Mm -hmm. but also rob's main problem is well okay rob has a lot of problems but one of his main problems is his inability to extricate himself from music the reason that's a problem is because he romanticizes the music so much that real life basically has no chance of ever comparing right well he romantic he romanticizes the, the music like that he wants the life to live up, live up to that much like he romanticizes his past until he gets told outright that that that's not uh that not really how it happened he he wants his life to be like the poetry of of music but instead of actively trying to do that in the now he only does that with his past right which i completely understand there was a point in my life where i went through like the first breakup that really hurt. Mm -hmm. And I told that story over and over and over again for like the next year, year and a half. It became my own personal mythology at that point, much like Rob's past breakups have for him. It's not just a story. He's telling you the myth of how he became. Right. And it's, I mean, it's well known now that, you know, memories are rewritten and redefined every time you remember them and they're pliable and every and as we remember things, we add details and we embellish things, and we're not that good at remembering, but we are good at thinking, fooling ourselves into thinking we remember things verbatim the way they happened. So when you keep telling yourself those stories, especially if you write a song about them or if you tell the story over and over again, something might change. But that in your head, that is the, the full reality of what's what's actually happened. And I've obviously had that happen many times before too. Yes, and and. Since Rob sort of likes telling these stories about himself, he's essentially looking for those new songs, songs being the stories of his life now, even at. okay. so, A, I need to say I don't buy the ending at all. Right. I don't buy that they get back together and are happy. I don't buy that he's changed because we don't see that he's changed. He just says that he's changed. (laughs) (laughs) I know. But even in the midst of them getting back together and being happy, he starts flirting with the music critic. And it's almost like his life doesn't make sense unless this is going to be an awful story he can tell in the future. I think a lot of the the perspective thing comes in where uh, like that dichotomy where you think as soon as you get back together with the person you've been pining after, you go, okay, things are going to be great this time. You know, you can be really happy about it in that moment. And then that, part of you that is trying to, you know, hit on this new girl that you meet in the record shop. And that is like the two parts of him fighting with, <laughs> with each other where he's like, when is this going to stop? When am I going to stop making mixtapes for new girls every single, you know, every single time I meet somebody. So like the, the movie kind of ends where he's still thinking that things are going to go well. So who knows what happens when they get over the next hill. Uh, so a couple of things about that very ending. The the reason I was uh, comparing his breakup stories and everything to songs are is A, because I am fairly certain that that's how Rob mm-hmm. sees them. Top five breakup <laughs> songs, top five breakups. They both come up in the story. But it's essentially like he's living his life three minutes at a time. <laughs> but not not sort of in the way that Lloyd Dobler is, where it's like, let's just get to the next moment. Rob wants this moment to be over so that something new and exciting can happen again. Mm-hmm. 
But it's, at the same time, it sounds it seems like he wants to go back and listen to his favorite songs again. So how do I want to put this? So if, if you think of all these moments in Rob's life as songs, and I am certain that he does, he almost never romanticizes albums throughout the entire movie. I, they might come up once or twice, but he generally talks about specific sure. songs. And at the very end, I, I wish the whole metaphor of making him a mixtape had come in earlier in the mm-hmm. movie because it doesn't come in until very late when he's starting to make the mixtape for for the critic. But in talking about making a mixtape, he's essentially talking about how you take all these songs that are great by themselves and just find an arrangement for them that makes them all even right. greater. You're expressing your feelings through someone else's poetry, I think is what he says, something like that. He does, but I'm pretty sure the mixtape is a metaphor for stringing along these these moments in life into something that adds up into something greater than all of these moments right. by themselves. So he's kind of cherry cherry picking the these specific moments. He does say of the final mixtape that he's making it for Laura because he's trying to make one that will make her right. happy. So I I think essentially you know, the writers and filmmakers are saying he's finally ready to string together moments whether they're good or bad, into a life that can be centered around him and Lara and making her happy instead of just worrying about his own. No, I know you said you don't buy the ending in a certain way, but he and Lara both said at different moments that they're they're tired. They're basically tired of the rigor, you know, the game that they've been playing and pushing. And he's he said when he asks her to marry him, weirdly in the bar. He says, like, I'm, I'm tired of yeah. wondering and I'm tired of this and this. And, and then she's like, oh, well, I'm sorry. You know, that's the most romantic thing I've ever heard. I'll say yes. Like, but they both say that to each other when she's in the car with him after the funeral. She says, I, you know, I'm too tired to be with anybody else. And he says, so if you had a little more energy, you, you know, probably go out looking for somebody else. But beings that you don't, you're happy to stay with me. And she says, yeah, more or less. So and like, that's kind of how they get back together. So like the way they got back together and the marriage proposal thing kind of mirror each other as well from different sides. You're totally correct. The reason I don't like it, I guess is because the movie ends on like a note on a tone that feels like it's supposed to be hopeful for the future Mm -hmm. for them, but without really showing, uh, showing us why we should be hopeful for it. Yes. He said he's tired, but we haven't actually seen him do anything to try and make any of it all up to her. Let let me ask you this real quick. It never mentions that he tries to even pay her back the money he owed her, right? Which is one of the big things that he thinks the breakup was about. Correct. But I I know they did mention in there that she she didn't really care about the money, uh, you know, so much. (laughs) That's what she said anyway. But my question is, he he didn't have enough money to pay her back. Then where the fuck did he get the money to fund those two punk kids ep and help them produce and and distribute this this ep i don't know that's a good question maybe he borrowed more money from her (laughs) (laughs) maybe but he either would have had the money to pay her back or he would have recouped the money to pay her back all i'm saying is there was a plot device right there that they could have used to show him moving forward Mm -hmm. in a mature way like paying a debt he owes right like a, a literal debt, yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, a meta- metaphorical a one literal well. debt. Yes. That's a good point. <laughs> but they they don't actually show us that he's changed in any real right. and way. I think, we just have to take his word I think, for but it. But I think that, to me at least, that's the, the, at the end of the movie is that like that kind of is the point that he, yeah, they have he hasn't changed. 
they haven't changed as people so much, uh, or he hasn't changed as a person so much, but they're both, they both realize that, you know, it's almost like they're settling at the end. Like they're like, well, I don't, you know, I, I, I know that I love you despite this. And uh, yeah, sure. I'm, uh, there's always like something else that might tempt me that might be better out there, but I'm kind of realizing that this is kind of where I'm the happiest. Uh, I'm never happy when I step out of this and then get, you know, everything gets a little, little weird and we, we fight and, uh, the, the other per he says like the other person is just a fantasy. Like we don't, we never have those actual fights because they're just a fantasy and I don't have the fantasy about the fights and I, and they're, they're only wearing fancy lingerie because I would never have to fantasize about it. All those problems exist. I own fancy lingerie. It's <laughs> a guess, but you also own <laughs> the, the tidy or the, 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 the panties that have been washed a thousand times and hang on the thing. <laughs> He's, right. but right. like, I mean, I think that that scene kind of, sum that up or fix that problem for me where it's like, okay, well, this is the fantasy is never real. Like the fan, as much as I want the fantasy to be real, whenever I step out and try to find that fantasy, it never fleshes out the way that I'd like it to. And I'm happier in the reality here with you in, you know, in these problems that we have. No, I, I mean, I get it that it's there in the dialogue. I'm just saying this is a movie where you could very easily show us like if it's in the book and it doesn't actually show him doing it, that's, that's fine because you're, in a book, you're in the character's head, but in a movie, you're also watching the character and it's a visual medium. So just showing us something right. that shows him moving forward because his whole problem is he doesn't move well, forward. No, I, and I think, and, I, and part one of the things that I have to hear too, is that um, you, that a person like that might need is a person like Lara who forces you to move forward by saying like, um, Hey, I, I booked this venue. I have like Barry's band is playing it's going to be a CD release party for these, for this out, this record that you're putting out. You're finally putting something out. Like you're the professional critic is finally putting something in the world to be criticized. And he's like too, like too much of a, of a pussy to do it. He's just like sitting back and he's just like not wanting, he's, he's waiting for something to happen and she pushes him and makes him do it. So like pushing him over that edge and like where he realizes that it's going to be good. And Barry actually can sing, <laughs> you know, and like the part of the party is going to go yeah. well. Like, I feel like that is, that's the step forward that he's taking in this, in this part. I don't know about the relationship part, but being able to allow someone else to help you like take their hand and help, let them bring you forward. I think that's what Lara's role is for him. Technically. <laughs> yes. You want to see it. <laughs> but I will argue that him DJing again is a regression, but also yes, he, he does take that next step into helping. Like she helps him put the party together for mm -hmm. the release which is a big next step for them. But he immediately takes Laura's words that helped talk him into agreeing <laughs> to do it and uses those words to flirt with the music right. critic. That is very true. It is true. <laughs> it is true. He's a complicated person. Like, well, she says like, you have to, she says you I have to allow things to happen to people, especially yourself. And like she, she's just, she's fighting for him. And I think like, that's like, he's like a project for her in a way, in a way, like, he, she, she wants to help like make him better. Yeah. You know, even if it were just something as simple as torching the mixtape that he made for the, the music yeah. critic, if they had just given him a shot of giving us a shot of him ejecting it, thinking about it and tossing yeah. it in the trash, pull the tape out or something. Yeah. Just yeah. something. Uh, Give me uh, something, I man. <laughs> I think you might agree. We're getting 
pretty close. Yeah, to we're pretty. Here. We're going pretty long. But I, the, a couple other things I want to say about this one is that like there's just things that I pointed out because this is one of my favorites and I have a lot of uh, connections to it. Is that the character of Charlie, where he says like, I never got comfortable with her. I always felt like a fraud, like a punk that shaved. You know, somebody who shaved their head and then said they've always been a punk. <laughs> like he's always he's so insecure mm-hmm. about being with her, and he's like, why would why would this girl go out with me? Like. He, he actually says like, she liked me. She liked me. At least I think she liked me. Like he, he still to this day mm-hmm. doesn't, doesn't know or believe or for sure. And like, I think that's, that, that was one of the things like the character of Charlie in that story always kind of grabbed me in a certain way because I felt that way about a specific person. Um, and I, the yeah. person, the person that I was dating and I was like, I never got comfortable with that person feeling like, I really don't know if they like me or not. Like I always feel like they're out of my league or whatever, you know, euphemism you want to use for it. It just, I, you know, so I really connected to that mindset. No, I, I totally agree. And in fact, I think that's one of the things that makes Rob most relatable is that he, he says it specifically for that relationship, but it's pretty clear that he feels that way about pretty much every relationship Mm -hmm. he's ever had, that he's not good enough, uh, which is why he gets so upset and angry and depressed about breakups and why he tries to pin them all on the women because he's not ready to accept the those truths about about himself even though he knows they're mm-hmm. there he knows he's an asshole he knows he doesn't feel like he's yep. good enough but he just he just can't accept yep. them also i just want to throw it out there john cusack's hair in high fidelity is awful <laughs> it, it is, is awful it gets a little it gets a little better throughout the movie as it gets like more tousled. But in that first scene where he shows up at the record store and he's got like that almost bowl cut yeah. going yeah, it's, on. It's a, str- it's a strange choice for haircut. It's terrible. Oh, also just the, I wanted to say thematically, just the fact that he loves records is just a further extension of his love for things that are in the <laughs> right. past. So it's just that like, he's just out of time with <laughs> With what with what is real or what's what's uh, what's present? That's a good that's a good point. I didn't really think about him owning a record store, which is an old medium. Any other notes specifically about High Fidelity? Um, let's see. Um, I mostly just talked about that he doesn't change. Um, let me see what else. Um, yeah. I would say like that that the boss Bruce Springsteen makes a cameo and says he plays his little blues riff and goes to say that that I'll tell you know that good that good good luck and goodbye to your top five and. You know, like he's kind of imagining the, the, the boss singing this to him, which is great. Um, and he's, yeah. <laughs> he's giving him the advice that he needs to get, but he still is re- reluctant to take it. Well, I mean, it's just a fantasy yeah. anyway, so what's it matter? Well, I mean, <laughs> and of course, the, the, one of the things we didn't talk about is the, the, the important scene where they say uh, where they're on there. He's on his, his date or whatever with uh, um, Lisa Bonet. And he's like, it's important what you like, not what you are like. Call me shallow. It's a fucking truth, you know? And like, they're, they're having such Yeah, a and you know what? That's fucking it, shallow. It is. It is shallow. And I found it to not be true. I've, I've been with people who have every like everything in common with me and it hasn't gone well. And then I've dated people who, who don't have anything in common with me and it goes oh. extremely well. So, yeah, it's, it's completely untrue. That's part like, uh, Rob Gordon, man. I, <laughs> It's like, I want to like Rob because as much as I say, I like to see a lot of myself in Lloyd Dobler. There's also a lot of myself that I see in Rob, but that right there is just, it's Rob essentially telling us 
that he knows he's an asshole, but he wants us to like him anyway. Right. And then at the end of the movie, I feel like if they, they try to play up the, the, the power of the apology when his sister says, or not, I'm sorry, not his actual sister. When Liz, when Liz says, yeah, Liz. Uh, says, you know, just the one apology would probably do. And then he like goes over and apologizes to Laura. And then like that kind of goes from there. But, um, and I know it's not, that, that, that doesn't fix everything he's done but it looks like he, at least he's like taking somebody's advice and trying something different. Yeah. Okay. So when I say they don't show us him moving forward, I think if you were to ask the filmmakers, they would probably say that they do that mm-hmm. twice. Once when he apologizes, which doesn't really cut it for me. And uh, again, at the end when he's making a mixtape for mm-hmm. Laura and, and one that will make her happy, but a, I don't think that apology is enough, Indeed. but B uh, when he's making the mixtape for Laura at the end, it's still him trying to do something for it's him doing a version of something he loves right. <laughs> for someone well, and, else and, and, and not trying to do something outside of his comfort zone for enough. someone else. Um, and I see, and I, I guess my only retort to that one would be that sometimes like I could see that, that being like, that's the way he knows how to express himself. So he wants like, he, I, I saying, yeah, I know. But I mean like that might be like, that's his only way of really knowing how to say, here's how I feel about you. I'm going to use someone else's poetry to tell you how I feel about you. I, I get it. And I think that totally can work in real life, but this is a movie <laughs> and I just wanted a little more out of the well, ending. Well, it's a book. And I, and I know, I know. <laughs> but it's awesome. <laughs> the, the book is also great if anyone is interested. Um, I think the only other thing that I had on, in here for, for High Fidelity was that he said, the quote where he says, uh, you're kind of living, I was living with one foot out the door just to keep my options open. And that's just suicide by tiny increments. And I'm like that, it, that realization yeah. kind of, you know, if, if he can actually live by remember that and actually live by, by how he is portraying himself at the end of the movie, then maybe he actually can move forward. Yeah. Maybe he can. <laughs> maybe <laughs> we, we don't know because we haven't seen it, but it's very possible Who's that he's pessimistic. Can. now. <laughs> <laughs> You're much more pessimistic about Rob Gordon than I am. <laughs> that's true but i'm pessimistic about the fake optimism at the end of this movie i'm buying into that optimism until the next movie comes out, until the next season of high fidelity comes out on sure Hulu. so uh what if anything do you think we can learn from uh comparing these two movies the the very optimistic relationship movie and the very pessimistic um, one i would say there's no point in obsessing over all of the little things when it comes to those relationships because in both of those movies they're obsessing they're obsessing over like why did we break up with lloyd it's one girl but with rob it's many Mm -hmm. so like that obsession like living living in you know living in the moment and trying to yeah I i think that is a much better way to be to be to be living and to try to be optimistic than it is to try to figure everything out all at once. You know, it doesn't seem to work out well for either character. Yeah. And it just seems like as silly as it might be, Lloyd is trying to create a great story and Rob wants a great story behind him. He wants to have sense? had a great story um, to tell. Y- yes. yes. And he's just really angry that he doesn't have one. Rob is so yes. angry and he lives a he, he lives a good life. I don't know. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, I, do, I, do, I do remember there's, there's one thing that they said in high, in uh, say anything that reminded me of the, the both movies who is when uh, Lloyd says, do you need someone or do you need me? And I was like, that's, the, that's the Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. And cause that's, cause that's basically what he says. And then Laura says, ah, you know, I just need somebody and you're here. So <laughs> 
it's just funny that yeah. that theme is on both in both movies. Yeah, and in fact, as soon as Lloyd says that, he says, "Never mind, I don't want to know." Right. <laughs> uh, like he, like he, he doesn't want it to be true that she just needs someone, and he's the one that's there. He. He'd rather not know. He's so optimistic that he would rather not know. Yep. Whereas Rob doesn't mind yeah. just being the one that's there because he's just happy to have her back. For sure. Yeah. And I think that those are all, all good points. Also, I, I will say, I don't think either of these relationships lasted for the rest <laughs> of the lifetime of, of, of the characters. Well, that's, that's the beauty of movies um, that end like this. You get, you, get to, you get to make up the real ending. It's not like it's not like Six Feet Under where you get to see the end of every character. Oh, I've never seen Six Feet Under. I don't think High Fidelity makes any more or less of a case for pessimism than say anything does for optimism necessarily. Mm-hmm. It's more Lloyd is able to see himself in a more realistic way and Rob isn't. And I think that's the main problem Rob has is he only sees himself through the through the music. Right. That and he's he in a bit of denial about and, reality. So yeah, yeah. So he's just both of them have a problem with moving forward, but I think Lloyd's gonna be okay because he doesn't bring himself down the way that Rob is constantly bringing himself down. So, so maybe there is a, a case for optimism over. Maybe I think there's a case for um, in both movies to say appreciate the people that you have and you know take the time that you have with them because you know you never know what's going to happen i know i know these movies aren't about death but like at the same time they're, they're about loss in one way or another or about the potential for loss and by taking advantage of the of the moments that you have in the moment and living you know choosing to be happy you know, cho- choosing to be in a good mood then you can you know look back on those with you know with more happiness than rob has can look back on his things uh, pretty pretty negatively well I think there you have it. I think that's uh, I think that's the summation of watching these two movies. I couldn't have put it uh, any better myself. I didn't even think it myself. <laughs> nice. Well, <laughs> that uh, that'll do it for this week. Then uh, next Tuesday we'll put out another one with a uh, with another movie. I think we have a couple couple ideas of what we're going to be doing next. Um, pretty excited about some of the next ones we have. Um, but until then, you can follow us on the social medias. Uh, at imitating art pod that's uh, at, on both Twitter and uh, Instagram. I'm going to be much more active on Instagram because I don't really know what people do with Twitter anymore, uh, except for complain about politics. So <laughs> that, that, that's so, what I do. <laughs> but you can follow us uh, individually as well, Chuck. Yeah, uh, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Big F and Moose. Uh, I'm pretty sure both of those profiles are private but uh as soon as these start coming out if people start adding me i'll probably start allowing them to and my uh my instagram profile is public and mostly mostly uh photography kind of stuff but it's at uh don't worry i'm finite and you can follow me as well um and we'll be posting on the uh, imitating art uh instagram when things are going to be coming out and some behind the scenes things as well as we go forward um, so we're kind of looking forward to doing some of that stuff. Uh, and you can also email us at imitatingart1 at gmail.com. Which is fitting because we, you know, somebody else already had imitating art. So we ha- we're number one. You know, I, I can't be sure that that's not me. I can't be sure because I've had this idea for a while. I can't be sure that no. I didn't make that email like 
six months ago and, and completely forget about it. I thought it's it was just going to be ironic that we're that we're, we're number one, <laughs> but we're not. We weren't the first one to make that email. So uh, if you have any thoughts on any of the movies or have any suggestions for movies that you would want to see us talk about in the future or just anything at all, say hi. You can hit us up at any one of those addresses. Yeah, don't say anything mean. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, you could say mean things, but we'll probably just... Or I'll reply you. and say, God damn, that's some cold shit. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that'll do it for us this week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's... <laughs> That's imitating art. Bye, everybody. Don and Chuck will return in Imitating Art with Don and Chuck.